Yeah, baby. Uh, oh, we're right. Okay, hey, we're, we're recording, guys. Oh, oh, I see. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, hi. Oh, yeah. Oh. And welcome to the Scott and Ross show. And uh, hiya to you as well, Ross. And hiya to you, Baba. Keeping out of trouble, are you? Yeah, keeping my nose clean, you know what yeah, I mean? Staying, uh, off, staying off the radar. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you know I worry. <laughs> With um, and also, yeah. so how, how's your headache? Because um, I understand you had a headache before. I did. had a real uh, miserable little headache going on there for a minute. And uh, I, was, I was sent on an errand to uh, home base. And I was walking around home base with a, a furrowed brow. And uh, I got back home, banged a, a, an energy drink down me and a, and a slice of cake. And I'm well away. So, you know, back to good old classic Loz. Brilliant. I mean, that my method of resolution would probably be different to that. I think that would just uh, exacerbate the issue for me. But anyway, I'm glad. I mean, because I can understand the headache after talking to me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, let's let's just monitor the situation, shall we? Indeed. I'm a delicate flower. So I mean, I, this is an epic one today, Lars, isn't it? We've oh, um, yeah. we've spent many hours now discussing what we believe to be the greatest movies of all time. So some seven hours, in fact, mm-hmm. and um, we've reached the summit, as I think you fittingly said at the end of the last one. Indeed. And so I guess we wanted to round off film with what I'm sure will end up being a feature length special here, because we're we're doing our top three ever. I mean, ever. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, the last two podcasts, those were some of the longest, and we only covered two in each of those. Particularly, I think the last one, where I had a lot to say about five and four, that must have given you a headache. So um, <laughs> we've got well, a week. Sorry, go on. We, 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 we have done some supreme waffling on, on, this, uh, on this little escapade that we've gone off on. What film am I doing here, Laz? We must have waffles. We must all have waffles. <laughs> the lady killers. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, plenty of um, quality waffle. And um, I think we've got a work cut out here to keep this feature length, I'd say, because uh, I need to mention my favourite scene of all time at the end. And, ah. and I suspect I'll actually end up talking longer about that than I will any of the three top three films. I don't know. I've just got that <laughs> feeling. I have a feeling that that's going to be, be the case. So um, you got a feeling. And without further ado, well, let's get the jingle out of the way and get stuck into this, shall we? Actually, Lars, before we do get into, I suppose it'd be your number three, wouldn't it? It's your turn again. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but, but quickly before we do that, and, and do stop me if I'm taking the piss here. Can I, <laughs> can I just throw a couple more quote-unquote mentions into the ring <laughs> that, that I, I was reminded of this week? Ghostbusters 1 and 2, the originals, and another 90s classic, Mrs. Doubtfire. There we go. Right, okay. I just wanted to mention them, because if I'd thought of them way back at the start, they would have gone into that mentions list. But right, you're, 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 you're going to be upset here. I've, I've never actually seen Mrs. Doubtfire all the way through. Jesus I've seen... Christ! <laughs> I've, 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 actually, I've obviously seen Ghostbusters. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Satan, you know, but... Um... Yeah, well, I think there's a case of saying you are Satan. If you haven't watched all of Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, you know, am I Satan? Am I not? Call me Stan. It's only one letter off, isn't it? Just either way, I, I genuinely hope you're ashamed of yourself. I am, but not for that. But, um, but yeah, oh, the go- yeah, don't get me started on the Ghostbusters remake. Because uh, everyone involved with that should be ashamed of themselves, you know? It's got oh, nothing yeah. to do with misogyny on my part. It was just shit. Mm. The new one with Paul Rudd looks promising. 
Um, definite cinema mm. visit for that one, old Bean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could have my arm twisted. But anyway, I just quickly wanted to mention the original two Ghostbusters because I, a bit like Dumbo, you know, if I hear the theme tune and <laughs> this, the, the score for the original Ghostbusters, I am swept right back to simpler times. <laughs> and Mrs. Darkfire has just gone on with this because you haven't seen it. Are you absolute cretin. So please, Lars, because I am really excited to hear your top three. So, I, uh, yeah, over to you. Okay. Well, first and foremost, I don't think with any of the three, for you anyway, is going to be much of a surprise. Number three is a film that I I said to myself when starting out, I didn't just want to talk about comic book films. as I mean, my taste in film is quite varied, but at the same time, there's so many of the recent sort of MCU runner films that I could talk about uh, in glowing terms. It could could well have almost been... 10 of the top 20 being Marvel and I was just like well it's not even if I felt that way it's not interesting listening and you know I just wanted to uh, perhaps shine a diverse light uh, across these uh, these little gems that I've picked out for you all but that this one very much definitely is uh, because it's Avengers Endgame oh, now I okay. I allowed myself Avengers Endgame uh, coming in at number three and the only other one that I really mentioned from the MCU was, of course, Thor Ragnarok. Um, uh, yes. Thor Ragnarok is, is just is, uh, is, a, is a joy of a film. Uh, and that's why I had to put it in because, you know, it, it was um, had, had revived a day of mine that was very quickly going south. Uh, but Avengers Endgame is brilliant, but I have to put the, the, the sort of uh, the asterisk by the side of it is it is so brilliant because it is the culmination of, t- of 10 years of cinema. I mean, the the, the stories of, you know, uh, not only just the initial core group of Avengers, but people like the Guardians of the Galaxy and Doctor Strange that have been involved sort of in later on into things. It, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, because it's got so much preceding it, it makes the story all the more richer. It means that when you dive straight in, there's no setup required. It, it, I think it, it could be viewed as a film in its own right, and I do think you would get something from it. Did but, you say it was the combination of 10 years or 10, 10 hours worth of film? Uh, 10 years. 10 years, okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's, a, deca- uh, a decade of like an Avengers series of films? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, start, yeah, start, you'll have to start, excuse my just... I've got zero knowledge about this stuff. No, no, that that's you know adequate uh, <laughs> so, so yeah starting with iron man and ending with well end game there, there have been uh, a couple of others i think um, black widow's been pushed back but yeah um yeah at, at the time it was it was certainly 10 years of uh, mcu shall we say yeah and yeah be, because as i say each, each each one sort of does somewhat lead into the other i don't think it's necessarily essential that you've got to watch them all to get the most out of any one of them Sure. But I think like any like any series, I think you, you you probably are better off doing that because, well, that's the way I did it when I was watching them in the cinemas and I certainly enjoyed it. So that's, that works for me, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, Avengers Endgame is, is sort of almost so broad that, you know, I'm going to struggle. I know, I know full well I'm going to listen to this back and go, oh, you didn't talk about this. Or, oh, uh, you know, you, you didn't highlight this character. I mean, 
I'm just going to go for what is 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 coming to me first, and we'll we'll work around you know other bits here and there because I've I've made no notes for this as I have for for pretty much all of it because I'm I'm going from passion really, uh, yeah. that's what's what's drawn me to all of these films, and, and I'm I'm supremely passionate about this this top three. Yeah, that, and, likewise, uh, that's that's been somewhat my mantra. You know, I, I made some notes around sort of the year it came out, and and maybe sort of the rest of the filmography of the director or something but yeah besides that i just wanted it to come out naturally for us to bounce off each other frankly mm. well i mean take for example in this film i i am afraid i'm going to have to sort of somewhat spoil things i will try and not give definitive answers for the end but in doing so i'm going to spoil previous films so it's it's a little bit i, I think maybe perhaps special rules might have to apply for the the top three Anyway, uh, say, for example, Tony Stark, which is uh, Robert Downey Jr., is one, one of the, the sort of the pillars of the MCU. And uh, one of the really cool early moments with Tony Stark is he has uh, an argument with Steve Rogers, Captain America. And Captain America, who's sort of, you know, the, the, the stoic, I mean, I suppose they're all heroes, but he is like a kind hearted, does the right thing, fights for justice, not just sort of necessarily uh the flag as, as everyone sort of goes oh he's like flag man he's painted up in the stars and stripes yeah yeah, yeah well sure he is but I, I don't really know anything about captain america but from what i think i know of his appearance i i, I remember like a shield more than anything else. yes and mm-hmm. i suppose that that could tell you actually that you know he's a lover not a fighter and he'll just do what's maybe necessary for the for the betterment of, of america man indeed because I've, I've i've seen sort of memes where it's just like you know uh captain america power, powered by america or powered by freedom you know and i think I actually see <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly that or a Bud, budweiser yeah yeah uh so so yeah steve, steve rogers i mean i i love how steve, I'm, I'm i'm i've massively drifted already so okay we we return to iron man cuz cuz we we that drifted me. That was me that Look, led you astray. I apologise. <laughs> Not for the first time. Won't this, be the is, this was one dick talking bollocks on this occasion. <laughs> nice. Like it. Uh, yeah. So Tony Stark, uh, he, he starts off sort of all about himself. And he, he realises that, you know, he, he's the star of his own film uh, that, that's not being filmed if you get what i mean his his life is his own performance and he's like a rock star despite the fact that he's a weapons manufacturer and he, he goes through this journey where he realizes not only that to work together with other people and to, to trust and to care for other people just enriches his life uh, so much more than he ever thought possible with with i mean obviously like material possessions and living this sort of ridiculous playboy lifestyle and all the rest of it and he gets uh, into an, uh, an argument which I was uh, setting up with Captain America, where with Cap being that good guy, righteous character, he'd actually shown that he was ready to sacrifice himself in his in his own setup film, Captain America, uh, the first Avenger. And he says to Tony, you know, you're not the guy to make that big play, to, to dive on the grenade and, 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 and save the team, even if it costs you your life sort of thing. And I always thought that was a, a great line. And through Tony's arc, not only, I think, does he discover more about how helping other people and caring for other people makes him a better person and, and almost, you know, unlocks his ability to do more and be more in general, but also that he, he is willing to do whatever it takes to do the right thing because he knows once he's become a part of 
being uh, on the team where, where they're saving the world and, and, and you know, saving millions and, and, and millions of lives, that to not be a part of it, to not help and, and to see potentially things go down the drain, that he, he knows he would never be able to rest if he let that happen. So he's always been a, a driven character, but now he's driven to, to save. You know, uh, in, in Infinity War, the, the visitation of, of Thanos is, is uh, leaves the world changed forevermore, shall we say, without giving too much away. And it certainly leaves Tony Stark a, a changed man. He's, at that point, had almost perfected his Iron Man armor and had organized a, a small sort of team to go after Thanos and is quite readily beaten. And it, it's only through bargaining with Thanos by Doctor Strange that Tony Stark manages to walk away alive. Even so, at the start of Endgame, you, you, you find him drifting through space with Gamora, who's, who's another character who's, who's often been uh, slightly misunderstood, but is, is sort of more on the villain side than the hero side. And the, the power in the ship is failing, and they're doing whatever they can to sort of occupy his mind to take it away from the fact that, you know, once the power's out, that's the life support gone, and, and Gamora is, uh, is part robotic, so she can survive. But Tony Stark, that's going to be the end. And there's a, a really lovely bit right towards the start where you think that he's sort of almost narrating the situation. And what he's actually doing is using the last of the power in his Iron Man suit to record a goodbye message for his wife. Wow. And that's, that's really poignant. And it comes, comes back around towards the end of the film as well, which is, it, again is, is done in, in, in such a, a, a lovely way. Uh, you, you've also obviously got Captain America himself, who I would say is, is probably the, the strongest of the, the three sort of trilogies of uh, the, the MCU. And I mean, especially Steve having been literally one of the, the wartime soldiers fighting the Nazis, uh, he was a scrawny kid from Brooklyn and he tried so hard to, to get enlisted by the U.S. Army and, you know, he got asthma and he was, you know, scrawny and, and, and all of us. And they they kept turning him down. And he essentially, like, you know, tries to enlist one more time and bumps into this doctor. And he sort of says to him, you know, you have every reason not to want to fight. You're not the biggest. You're, you know, you'd be cannon fodder. Why, why would you want to do this? Why have you tried to illegally? Because he's had to provide fake details every time because he's already tried to join up under his own name. And he says to him, you know, why would you risk imprisonment? Because it was a a, a federal offence to lie on the the registration documents. And he says, you know, there's other men out there who are just the same as me who are going out there and, and laying down their lives. And why should I be any less? How could I give any less? And that that real, you know, knowing that he, he might sort of be mown down within 30 seconds, but he wants to, you know, give as much as, as anybody else. I, I always found that really stirring and get sort of recruited by this scientist uh, for the super soldier serum, the super soldier uh, program to basically uh, give him a chance to be more than he could be. And uh, there's, again, a, a lovely moment with the doctor where he sort of says, you know, Steve Rogers asked him why, why he's been picked. Why, why is it him? There's been, you know, other soldiers that are bigger, stronger, faster. And he says, I could pick the guy that the, the general wants him to pick for the program. 
and he's a, 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 a jock, a typical jock. He's big, brash. You know, he's an athlete. He was the quarterback in, in, in college and, and all that. And he, he thinks he's the big man on campus sort of thing. Hmm. And, you know, Steve is, is still very much this scrawny little kid from Brooklyn. And he says, you know, why me? And he says, OK, I could make him the, the super soldier and we could see where that goes. But the beauty with you is you've known what it's like to be helpless and you've still got up and readied yourself for another go just because you you refused to sort of back down. Yeah, so the decision was, I guess, reconciling mental and physical strength and making a call based on the two being equally important almost. Mm, Exactly. And he said, someone like you will always respect that power, whereas he's never been in that position. And he says, I think the power would corrupt a man like that. And of course, naturally, he, he couldn't have been more right. Uh, Steve is he's almost the hero of mine. He's, he's, he's such such a virtuous man, such a, a, a nice guy, a really good hearted man. And don't, um, I, I, I'd say don't ruin too much for me here, because actually, um, I mean, I would quite like to see these. I mean, the, the fact that uh, the MCU is, is it means what it does to you. That that you know that means quite a lot to me. I, I, I mean, I assume all the Avengers films are worth watching. Yeah, it was an Infinity. Sort of oh yeah. So um, I mean, I'd almost like to see them all because I think this will go on the list, obviously. But if I was to dive in at the end, I just worry that I'll be judging it more on like just how epic it is, and you know, rather than taking the whole story into account because of course I can't. It, it would be like. Mm. I don't know, my equivalent would it'd be like maybe playing Mass Effect 3 and just not, yeah, yeah. not being able to connect with Commander Shepard, etc. Uh, anyway, I don't want to take it into another thing, but, but I guess that's, <laughs> that would be my equivalent. You know, if you haven't played Mass Effect 1 and 2, then how can you really engage emotionally, you know, as much as you can or would be capable of doing so? So I think the same applies here. I, I would like to see all of these. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And there were, there were points where more than points i mean i i would probably say at the top of my head maybe five times that i was sort of like openly crying and and you know it's sometimes it was joy and sometimes it was it was not joy it sounds like this has really had an emotional impact on you it's your number three and oh, so yeah. yes yeah. yeah this this is going on the list and maybe what we should do is because i think we should run through this watch list in sort of maybe the order in which they appeared on these podcasts so when we get to the end and we get to this this kind of point in terms of us viewing these films, we should just sort of go through all of the Avengers films. I'd be up for yeah, that. Yeah, I think I could probably nominate sort of recommended watching that you could probably get away with sort of, I reckon maybe about six or seven films and get what you need to out of, out of Endgame. How many are but, there? Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but I mean... They were releasing pretty much two a year for almost the whole of 10 years. So that's a churn out. Um, Bloody hell, I didn't realize there were that many. No, we'll not, yeah, we, won't yeah. put, we won't put all of those on the watch list. So <laughs> that will double the watch list in, in one fell yeah. swoop. So well, I was, I was, I was going to say, I, I, for, for someone who's not already the most uh, convinced to watch them all, then it might be quite a, a Herculean task. I think realistically, if I can, if I can speak for, for a minute about the, the whole lot, I mean, really. I even the ones I don't like I would probably say are a six out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the the you know there's there's Iron Man two which is 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 fine but it's really not it's okay 
as I say, six out of ten. It's it's just not compared to the first Iron Man, which is you know if you ever needed a film to get anybody, if you're going to dip your toe into to the MCU, start with Iron Man. So if you don't like that, then really you know you, you save yourself a lot of bother. I have um, seen Iron Man actually. Yeah, exactly. And I remember um, it being pretty good. I mean, it it well, it was probably better than pretty good. I think it was very very good at what it was. Um, I think that might be another one to that, that would be worth rewatching for you because I, I think. You know, having some of these uh, sort of themes that are set up fresh in your mind it, it would be good going forward. Because um, okay. I, I imagine it's been several years. Oh, yeah. The, I, I, yeah. 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 I mean, more than several. I, I Probably seven years, maybe, ago I watched that. I, probably when it came out, to be honest, whenever that was. Yeah, yeah. No, so... I, I remember trotting off to the cinema for, for almost all of them. But, yeah, I, I'd say probably, if I'm, if I'm being honest, there's three that I'd give a six to. The, the rest are sort of eights and above. So it's 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 an amazing sort of set of films, really, with with one given a little nugget as to to where the next one in the series is going, and and, and obviously sometimes the the plot points indeed intermingle, and it, it it comes through in. I mean, my God, I've talked about a satisfying ending before, and there is almost no finer crescendo for me than Avengers Endgame. And I know. There's very few other film sagas that have had so much build-up and so much. Obviously, it's a blockbuster and it's got all this hype. And I know some people just, you know, hate to hop on the hype train and all the rest of it. But as a story, as as a piece of cinema, is is it immaculate? Is, does it get a little bit fuzzy with some of the the time travel stuff? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. But I mean, once again, I find myself saying, you know, we are dealing with characters which I, I, I engaged with were believable. I wanted to see their stories, even, you know, certain journeys didn't necessarily end where I wanted them to, but I understood why things happened in the way they did and at least sort of could respect the job that the directors had done in juggling, which is an ensemble cast almost sort of unheard of. I mean, I think there's, there's something, I think somebody said something like for at least at least 50 plus superheroes in, in the, the, the whole of this film. Um, Interesting, because the, the film that I'm going to get to shortly essentially has a cast of three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, yeah, okay. so Avengers oh, yeah. Endgame, uh, I, I mean, I understand it, it does close everything out. And I think this is possibly the film that still made the most money at the box office. Mm. Uh, inflation not adjusted, because uh, I know yes. we talked about this before. So uh, yeah, Avengers Endgame. Wow. Sweet. All right. Hang on. I'm, I'm excited as to, to what your number three is. What's the bronze medal for you, Hughes? Well, okay. My bronze medalist is a film that I have certainly been banging on about to you for some time. And I think you've seen it now. <laughs> I mean, it's, we talked about sort of like the scariest film I've ever seen, you know, the one that blew my mind the most, maybe. I'd say this, this one is probably the most intriguing film uh, and maybe the one I was the most gripped by when watching Ooh. And it's Ex Machina. Ah, yes. Yeah, I, 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 well, words probably can't express how much I love this film, but, but it's my job to try and do that right now, isn't it? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I mean, I knew nothing of this guy who made it called Alex Garland because this was like his directorial debut. Um, he was involved with 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and he's done Annihilation. Have you seen that last? That's, that's pretty good. And he, he did it. Which a- one was that? Sorry. Uh, it's oh, but it's not an easy one to describe quickly. It's to oh, do. Okay. It's to do with going on almost a suicide mission into potential alien territory. 
okay. And he also did a cracking show that came out last year on iPlayer called Devs, which I love. Mm. But this is the, you know, the, the top of the mountain in terms of Alec Garland's work to date, I would say. And so I guess a little bit like you did just a minute ago, I, I will have to kind of talk through the film a little bit, uh, but I'll, I'll keep it spoiler free. Basically, Ex Machina follows a guy called Caleb, who's played by Donald Gleason, who we've all seen in just about everything, to be honest. He's, um, he's like a computer programmer, coder, and he works for a conglomerate named Blue Book, who are like a, they're like a, I think they're a search engine, and they're of comparable size to Google. You know, we're, we're talking world domination level in this film. And uh, Caleb wins a competition to go and spend some time on the luxurious estate of the company's CEO, Nathan. So obviously this guy's a big deal. Um, he's played by Oscar Isaac in the film. And that's all that sort of Caleb knows at this point, that he's, he's going to get together and meet him. And this obviously happens within the first two minutes or so, to be honest. Yep. And he sort of arrives by helicopter and it's a ridiculous plot of land. I mean, he says something like, hey, how long till we get to his estate? And the guy's like, oh, mate, we've been flying over it for an hour and a half. <laughs> and um, I, I think it was filmed in Norway, but I'm, I'm not quite sure where it's meant to be. I don't think we're told, but it, it's clear that this is to like just an incredible and quite reclusive estate as well. Mm. And so he gets dropped off and he's told to like follow the river and, and eventually he finds his way to this house. But I mean, I call it house but because obviously that's where Nathan lives. But really, it's probably not best described as a house. It, it's sort of high tech, opulent in places beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, if anyone knows the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, think of the Guggenheim Museum in New York, Lars. You know that? It's that orange peel type building you know men in black in the art gallery they're running up the oh yes yeah yeah okay. that's the, that's the guggenheim but frank lloyd wright arguably his most famous design is this place called falling water which is quite possibly just the most stunning piece of architecture and it sits amongst like the mountainous area with streams waterfalls this incredible natural beauty very much like this place it's almost like you know they almost carbon copied some of it if i'm being honest and um, I, I remember a lot of glass and a lot of sort of, you know, almost like cuboid sort of straight lines and, and um, a very modern in general, sleek and clean. Yeah, yeah. And, and with that kind of a cold grayness to it, there's a lot of kind of mm. um, rock and st- not probably not steel. But I mean, but I mean, it does suggest that something interesting is going on here, which which is and I'll get to that. Mm. So when they meet. Um, Caleb's a little taken back because he's had to sort of wander, you know, stagger through this incredible place and just find Nathan out in the back. And, you know, he discovers this, but he's basically just a dude with an epic beard who's like taken to a punch bag to clear a massive hangover. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Caleb's like, oh, was it a good party? And Nathan looks at him like, it's deadpan as he like, and just like, what party? Yeah. And, and so there's like this dawning realization of like, oh, okay, this maybe this guy's a bit of a wreckhead. But Anyway, they get chatting and it's revealed that Caleb is not just here to chat and drink for a week, but rather to be the first ever person to get a preview and a chance to test out the sort of latest invention that Nathan's been working on super secretly. Like beyond the, <laughs> like the, the non-disclosure agreement is completely um, discombobulating. That's a good word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And Nathan says sort of quite explicitly, look, I understand you're a bit freaked out, but we're not getting a lawyer involved in this. So either... You can decline and we can spend a week shooting pool, getting drunk or whatever. But in about a year's time, when you find out what you've missed out on, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Mm. And, uh, and this is probably still only about 10 minutes in, but it's important to set it up this way. 
And by this point, I'm so sucked into what's happening and, and already really emotionally invested in this that when, of course, Caleb agrees, I'm sort of rubbing my hands together and thinking, like, what am I in store for here? Like, <laughs> I, I was so hooked, Lars, I can't tell you. And so, yeah, at this point, with me practically falling off the edge of my seat, it's revealed that Nathan has built an AI far beyond the capability of which we've ever seen before. And that Caleb is the lucky man, recipient, I guess, who will be involved in meeting and ultimately testing it to see where he thinks it lies in terms of sentience and intelligence. And so this is the point where the words flash up on the screen, like Ava, session one. And like, mm. and by this point, I'm officially off the edge of the seat, cross, <laughs> cross-legged on the floor, nose up against the screen. And I, <laughs> I, I guess this is where I should probably hold back a bit on any further synopsis in terms of what actually happens. I've set it up there. Let's just yeah. say, let's just say from there, um, you, you know, mildly cryptically, but let's just say he's blown away by Ava. And she is seemingly indiscernible from human life in terms of emotion, cognitive thought. You know, we as a viewer almost immediately identify where there is a living soul. And like I said, you know, this it's essentially a free hand of this film between Nathan, the CEO, Caleb, the guinea pig, if you like, programmer, and then Ava. And there's this incredibly fascinating psychological triangle of trust which unfolds. And we're constantly trying to evaluate ourselves who is telling the truth, like who means what they're saying. And each character is so beautifully written by Alex Garland that, that we, we do question everything over and over again. A new side yes. And naturally, the discussions between Caleb and Ava are fascinating. You know, you get session two, session three, et cetera. But if anything, it's the chats between Nathan and Caleb at the end of the day, like over a beer, you know, or a meal. They're the ones I find the most gripping. There's all sorts of quotes that I just remember, you know, from, from having watched this so intently a good few times. I mean, there's reference to what's called the Turing test, which is that's basically a method of determining whether a computer is actually capable of thinking like a human being. Mm. Um, it's like a, a well-known test that actually gets used, I think, or has been used. And Caleb, after having met her once or twice, sort of says to Nathan, you know, over a beer, you know, it's just that in the Turing test that the machine should be hidden from the examiner. And Nathan, again, cool as you like, as is his aura, he says, no, man, we're way past that. Like, if I hid Ava from you and you could just hear her voice, she'd pass for human. You know, the, 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 real, yeah. the real test is to show you she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Mm. And then, like, later on, he asks Nate, um, Caleb, you know, how do you feel about her? Yeah, nothing analytical here, because I'm not, I'm not going to be able to explain to you how she works, mate. Just, just tell me how do you feel about her? And Caleb gives an answer that I can't quote word for word here, but giving, keeping it to a sort of family rating. But then basically <laughs> Nathan, Nathan likes his answer and just goes, great. So the next question is, how does she feel about you? And then it, and then it goes to like Ava session five away. And, but at this point, I was so engrossed in this. I can't tell you like how gripped I was by this. I mean, this, this is just so up my street, this type of thing. And it's done so well. And, mm. um, and so in these sessions, we're, we're kind of, we're seeing that she, she is real. And, and, um, and then I guess naturally we're asked, would she be capable of deception? You know, can we trust what she's saying? We know that humans have sadly gone down this path of lies, fraud. Can she do this, you know, in her, in her infancy? You know, is she smart enough? Would she mm. do it? Um, I mean, so yeah, this marvellous triangle setup. But uh, I mean, the thing is, Nathan, the CEO, he's clearly a genius with what he's achieved. And it's incredible, yes. like, what he's done with Ava. But he's clearly also a bit of a jerk, and he likes a drink. Uh, 
two things which echo throughout much of mankind, to be honest. <laughs> um, emphasis on man, I'd say there. And so, of course, his motives are in question throughout. I mean, this film kind of has much to do with, uh, as much to do with gender as it does with the idea of, of God, because of course, Ex Machina is taken from Deus Ex Machina, which is like God as God as machine. I think God as a machine. God from machine would make sense, I suppose. I should have brushed up on my Latin before this. <laughs> Where's Stephen Fry when you need him, eh? Yeah, I know, I know. Where are you listening, Steve? Um, so what else can I say? This was nominated uh, for an Oscar for its screenplay. I can't believe it didn't win. I should have looked up what beat it. Again, poor preparation. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> but this film, oh, this film is so intelligent. I mean, for me, for me, Luz, this is the ultimate psychological thriller film i mean i've talked about memento before and then the ones that didn't quite make the i meant honorable mentions like shutter island you know the, the matrix the shining you know they are incredible psychological thrillers but if they're an eight out of ten this is a 12 like it genuinely that's how i how highly i rate this film the way the way it's set up and, and the way it subsequently unfolds it's jaw-dropping uh, criminally underrated and um yeah. <laughs> and it does it doesn't it goes to scott hughes bingo again yeah and the thing is though it doesn't require intelligence to, to particularly enjoy you know you can't compare it to a film like ai which i mean that was largely a kubrick film i don't know if you knew that but spielberg kind of ran with the rest of it when he died no that's a totally different ah, I, I i'm i'm aware of ai i've, I've watched it and uh, actually i i quite like that i didn't realize it was kubrick and then uh, Spielberg. I I just saw Spielberg on the on the title screen and thought that was that. No, Kubrick wrote. I think more or less the whole of AI. I think, and it was going to mm. be the, it was going to be the thing he did after Eyes Wide Shut. But then, well, he died. So, well, yeah, that 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 would, would <laughs> it put puts a bit of a, a pinch on your plans, doesn't it? Yeah, it presents a problem, doesn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, that's a totally different type of film. I really like AI, but um, yeah. But going back to this, I mean, you might think again, it's almost my nostalgia and the emotional attachment to my first viewing that places this as high up as it is. But to be honest, when I first saw it, it was maybe like top twenty sort of thing, and then after a second viewing, I'd say it was top ten. And now, after about maybe seven or eight viewings of this film, where I've really taken in everything about it. Every mm. every word, every nuance. Here it is, firmly on the podium at number three, and it gets better every time. There are so many things that you could just easily miss. So it does reward more viewings, and it rewards your concentration. It's just it's a brilliantly written piece of work, very cunning. Probably got more to do with ego than anything else, and of course that applies to Ava as well. Sure, sure. And what else can I say? You probably the acting is just spot on from all three. In in particular. Yeah. Alicia Vikander, Vikander, she yeah, plays yeah. she plays Ava, and interestingly, she's ballet trained, and I think maybe that's partially why she was chosen here to like represent something that she is clearly a robot in the way that she walks, in the way that you can see her inner workings and and the stuff that's going on. It's it's amazing what the the job that she does in conveying that, but then sure. with what she says, how she says it, the the vibe, the aura, and the, the conversations that she has with Caleb. It's just, yeah, really overlooked acting performance, I think. And and even if you're not into sci-fi, and this is really about sci-fi as it gets, I mean, it's still worth watching. It's a magnificent psychological thriller. There's a disco scene that is worth watching for alone, to be honest. <laughs> so, yeah, Ex Machina, I've, I've probably waffled enough there. Lars, you have seen this now, haven't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have seen it. It's, it is definitely one that um, I'd heard from you and I think from Ace about how good it was. 
and you know certainly tickled my fancy um it's just an intriguing concept i mean i, I was going to say um just just going back a little bit i remember you specifically saying to me and i think this could probably be true for several films on on your uh, your top 20 i remember you saying how much you'd fallen for for ava and i must admit i've only watched it once and i i can agree uh, with you there that um in some ways it is almost a love story oh definitely you know, in, in the, yes. in the, her, her proving her humanity it not only is it to be loved because you could love an object in that respect but to to love and, and to be able to give love back but then also that sort of is it is it love is she sort of almost like is she pretending to be in love uh like you say you it, it's, it's one of those masterful uh, situations full of, of of questions. I mean, it, even since you started talking, a I already feel a little bit ashamed that it didn't make at least the top twenty because it is really uh, a really top t- tier film. But also, yeah. I Sorry, I was thinking about uh, an, uh, something that happened without trying to give away uh, particular spoilers. I did did think this was a really interesting moment. There's a moment where Ava um, does a drawing for. Mm. Uh, is it Caleb, the, the main character? Um, f- for Donald Gleeson. The... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Caleb, yeah. Uh, she does him a drawing and he sort of takes it away with him. And the, the Oscar Isaac's character... Yeah, uh, he Nathan, comes, yeah. Nathan, he comes to, to visit and notices that he's, he's got this drawing sort of up on his wall. And then he almost like confiscates it and sort of goes, you know, what, what are you doing? This is a test... And then goes and takes it, and and Caleb then watches on the screens as, oh my God, sorry, the um, Oscar Isaac's character, Nathan. Nathan, thank you. Uh, I nearly, I nearly said beardy man. Then um, yeah. he he goes and confronts Ava and sort of tears it up in her face and sort of walks off. And she sort of, you know, well, I, I, well, I, I, I mean, I, I I'm worried you're going to say too much here. But yes, and um, something. Oh no, else. that I, I was gonna, I was gonna leave it there, but literally to set the scene for, I was thinking, isn't that interesting? Did she want him to react angrily to her giving him the picture? Did she want him to observe Nathan sort of ripping it up and feel like, oh, he shouldn't have done that? It was just a nice thing she was trying to do. Uh, you know, who's manipulating who? Does does Nathan want Caleb to to see him be angry with her? And will that affect his thinking? There's already more complications to that scene alone than I'd already anticipated thinking of it as we were thinking now. I think that's that's a um, a real illustration of, of the sort of film this is. Well, do you know what she says right before he rips it up in her face? She says, no. is, it, is it weird to have created something that hates you? Yeah. Uh, and also something else really interesting happens in that scene, but I, I, I'm not talking about that. Um, no, no. But, um, there, you know, I mean, as you know, there were like power outages that feature a bit in this film. Oh, yes. It yes. sort of is to do with that. And it's, oh, it's, it's, this is very cat and mouse in some ways as well, this film. Mm. Um, sorry, I, I, when you were talking about like, yeah, falling for Ava when you watch it, it's kind of hard not to because she's such a poor soul that you really feel for. And she's designed, to, I guess, to be sort of physically attractive, or at least she is to uh, Caleb. And there's a point where, again, I mean, this isn't really giving anything away, but there is a point where she puts a dress and a wig on. And at this point, physically, she is... She's a woman. Well, yeah, she's indiscernible from from being human at this point because all her mm-hmm. inner blue lights and workings are covered up. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. Very, very, very interesting, this film. 
it's like like I think I said at the very start, it's just the most intriguing film I've ever seen. Sure. And it's my number three. Um, uh, you know, what what could possibly beat it last? Well, two films, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I uh... No, I think I've probably exhausted myself on that one, yeah. No, that's fine. I've got to be conscious of time because we're heading towards a three-hour podcast at this rate. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, more. So um, let's, let, let's, let's leave it there. Ex Machina, a stunning film. Um, yes. Uh, it was highly received, highly rated, I think. But then just, you know, eight, nine years later or whatever. No, it's probably less than that. Um, it just kind of... I don't know. It's just it's not been, 2014. It came out, so yeah, it is around that time mm. almost. Yeah, it's it's just it, it's it needs to be talked about again. It needs to be watched again by more people that haven't seen it, and it needs to be rewatched by the people that have because it's that good. Indeed. So uh, yeah, yeah. I I I I don't think I can say any more. <laughs> I feel I've mm. probably said enough on that film. So uh, before we get to your number two, Lars, I am going to have to just quickly pop to the lavatory. Okay. Right. Uh, no, you, were, you were fussing your dog there, and I, I, <laughs> I clicked on pause just so um I don't know I just clicked on pause so some of that's on on it now. I, I, why not? Well, yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, quick shout out to Molly, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I might cut that bit out. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how I'm feeling at the time. I mean, we'll have to. I was going to say you could always cannibalise it in some way and make it part of the little intro. Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how long this podcast ends up being, to be honest. Because I said feature length, and I, mm. and I suppose it could still be feature length if it's compared to the likes of Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's Lawrence of Drake's Borton rather than Lawrence of Arabia. So, oh, segue, segue, oh, yes. mate. Oh yeah. So go on, go on, Lawrence. Oh, sorry, Lawrence. Sk- skills, he's got them. I've got. Uh, yeah, go on. So your your number two, please. Right now, I can and I, and I will talk about these two films separately, but it will come as no shock to you no, that these these films are The Godfather one and two. But but which way round is it, Loz? I hear you cry. Well, uh, personally, I, I've got a, a deep love for for both films, but for the process of of making this list. I've put Godfather 2 second. Right. So you're you're, uh, happy, you're happy with having already given away your number one? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's, I can understand that because it, it allows you to talk about them both sort of, although I guess we'll split it, right? So I'll yeah. do my number two. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, go on. Uh, let's let's focus on, sorry, uh, did you say The Godfather Part 2 is your number yeah, two? Yeah, God, Godfather Part 2. Okay. Now, now uh, again, it, it's, it's an incredible film. But in, in as much as Avengers Endgame is almost made by the preceding films of which it is able to capitalise on and sort of take that momentum forward, I think the, the, very much Godfather 2 isn't Godfather 2 without the first Godfather to, to, to work off. Uh, it is an incredible piece of work. It's, yeah, again, it, you know, acting performances all over the shop. I mean, personally, I, I, I was a massive fan of the Don. I mean, Don Vito, God rest his soul, is 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 a is a, such a great character, and uh, you know he's got some some interesting quirks to him in in terms of you know uh, sometimes he he can he can seem a really moral person, and then you know actually you think about it, and he's killed many many people and had many people killed, and yeah, it's 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 great to see 
how the Don became the Don and De, De Niro's performance as the, the young Don is this, you know, I almost can't find a word to do it justice because uh, that's, that's the role that really made me like, right. Yeah. That's why people go on and on about how good De Niro is. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah Cause obviously um, Marlon Brando is the, the Don Dito that we previously knew. And, and of course he does appear in this, but then, yeah, like mm. you say, it does jump back to the, the early years, if you like. And that's where Robert De Niro plays the young uh, Vito Corleone. Um, yeah, it's, I've only seen Godfather Part Two once, but mm. it's majestic. So I'll shut up and let you do it justice better than I can. I <laughs> well, there is that, that lovely sort of juxtaposition between the young Vito sort of making his bones, going from sort of a uh, essentially a, a poor sort of store boy in a, in a grocery shop <laughs> in a neighborhood controlled by uh, Don Fenucci is always such a great name, frankly. I've always, always loved the name. Such a, a funny character. <sighs> Almost quite hard to describe it. He's that classical sort of, you know, struts around in a white suit with, a, I think it's a white fedora. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's completely arrogant. Feels like he owns the neighborhood. Would just walk up to um, somebody's store and start, you know, picking fruit or apples off the front and, and walk off and not pay for it and know that you know nobody dare raise a word against him well yeah uh, like, yeah you've got these characters haven't you with names like that and then you've got the not maybe the antithesis of that but you've got the very straight the you know normal name of michael if you like and then mm. and then the quite straight character of michael in comparison oh yeah I mean, Michael Corleone again is, is if you if you're not in on Michael's story, then you know the Godfather's probably not for you. But I don't, I almost don't understand how you can be. I mean, I when mean, I Michael, think of Al Pacino, I, I obviously think of of these films, and I think of Scarface. Yeah, oh, fully. Yeah, I, it, it's it's. I think it could have been done differently by somebody else, but it's almost the you know Ray Winston. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, how how uh, Pacino manages to convey keeping uh, Michael fairly sort of tight-lipped and straight-faced and yet he manages to give off this sort of cold calculating menace which is is really odd and and uh, but it, it really gets to me personally I mean there's uh, an, an amazing scene which is, is is very very famous I mean obviously did the whole film is very very famous but um, you know the, the, this this basically is is whilst we've got Don Vito in places sort of making his bones and, and sort of starting the family and, and, and that sort of thing, is also put against Michael trying to solidify his sort of spot as Don after the passing of his father and trying to work out who he can trust, who he can't. He's really trying not to be a mobster, but realises that he can't just shut the family down because mm. there's, there's too many people that are loyal to him there's too many revenue streams that are there, which would not necessarily be there if, if he were to go, you know, try and be 100% legitimate. And also, I think he knows as, as well as I think many people have, have at least felt at one time or another, that to, to be an upstanding citizen means to rely on the law to protect you. And unfortunately, the law just cannot protect you in, in certainly in the way that he is being used to being able to protect himself. Yeah, it's interesting because it, he's got he's got these strong principles, but then he still exists outside the law and will sort of always have to. Oh, sure. And he, he's, uh, you know, as you say, a, a, a committed family man and, and you know, uh, loves playing with his children and um, loves his wife. 
It's not a, a, a not a non-compassionate man. He is a compassionate man, I should say. That's it's terrible grammar on my part there. No, um, it's that's fine. But, not but, a non-compassionate yeah, man is, is you know, it should be said that yeah, way. Yeah, don't like it. Um, but yeah, so, well, so I, I I don't not this. Oh, this. <laughs> this is me dragging you away from important things. So sorry. Nubbed. <laughs> so so yeah so so you've got the the two storylines sort of running alongside one another and uh, it's it's really intriguing I, I know there's this there's several times where i feel like michael either feels like he's got his father watching him and sort of how would he do it there's an attempt made on michael's life and i know that he sort of feels like what would papa would have done in this scenario and he's working on a big deal with some sort of fairly shady characters who, who I won't really go into too much, but they've got big connections. I think it's down Miami and Cuba. And this is around the, I believe around the time where Cuba declared their independence. Okay. And that causes a whole lot of chaos sort of down the line. And it, it leaves Michael trying to get off the island whilst, you know, the, the U S embassy is, is being ransacked and, and oh, yeah. basically, and it, anyone who is not Cuban is either being strung up in the street or, you know, shot and killed essentially. So uh, that's just, just to try and give you a bit of a, a, a milestone as to where we are in, in history with this one. Obviously Don Vito, um, when, when he's sort of the young Vito, I think we're probably talking about 1920s there, but it could be, might even be 1900s. But yeah, um, it, it, yeah. The, the, the two running alongside each other, I find really interesting in terms of they they're both being challenged and and they're both trying to find a way to get where they want to to get where they need to really in, in both situations and yet how much are they willing to compromise how much are, are they willing to risk can you trust the ones around you can you trust your own family you know it's there's so much uh, tied up within trust you know the 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 scene that I was I was uh, sort of focusing on a, a moment ago is Michael has had an assassination attempt at his house after a party. And he's essentially got it down that his brother Fredo or Fredo was given information to a rival organization or family that he, he would be vulnerable at this time. And, and if you could get men into the compound that he might be here, he'd given information. Uh, and, and it's obviously against the family. And he sort of sits down there. They're both, you know, in, in, a, in a room overlooking the, the lake outside their, their house where they're at. And, you know, Michael knows full well that he's given this information over. He just almost wants to hear it from his mouth. And Fredo, who um, he, he has a, a really great bit there where, you know, he, he sort of says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael. I, I never knew that there was going to be a hit. They thought that you were being too sort of strong in the negotiations. And uh, it was felt that if they could sort of ruffle your feathers a little bit, that you might be interested in getting the deal done quick to, to get it over and done with. And that there would be something in it for me if I could help out. And, and Michael's sort of very quietly trying to not absolutely fly at him. But, you know, it's, it's, it's this quiet sort of smoldering rage. And he, he says, you know, why would you do that? You know, I'm, I'm, you're, you're my family. I've always taken care of you. And, and, and Fredo snaps and he's immediately like, yeah, you take care of me. 
you're my kid brother, Mike. All, all these years, the, the, you know, I, I, you're my kid brother and you got to take care of me. I wanted something for myself. And, and he, he says almost the, the infamous line. And he's like, you know, I know everybody thinks I'm stupid, but I'm, I'm smart. I'm smart, not like everybody says. And I want something for me. And <laughs> to say it's, it's to say I sympathize is probably going a bit too far. But I think, you know, we, we've always we've all sort of been in a situation where perhaps you feel you could do something that someone else is doing, but you were never asked to do it in the first place. Mm. And um, I find, I mean, obviously, there's quite a few family spats in this series of films. But, like, yeah. I, but I find it interesting because it's almost like, you know, how like a dysfunctional family is just such a trope that's played on maybe more in TV, you know. But mm. with this, it's almost the opposite. They're a very functional family. And oh, yeah. And like very, you know, at times and family is everything. It's yeah. It, I mean, it is everything because it's almost their society as well. It's like mm. it's just it, it is their life. It's that they, they can't really live outside of it in any shape or form, really. Of course, there are the perks that come with that. And then the, the jeopardies that do as well. Uh, you know, it, <clears throat> I suppose you've got to sort of hold it up against other classic mob films or films to do with that kind of crime. But I think um, The Godfather rightly should be heralded as the, the pinnacle of, of anything that's ever been done in that genre, let's say. We've talked about Goodfellas, haven't we? And we've talked about a couple of other things that I suppose you could say are similar. But no, for me, The, I mean, the Godfather is the, class, the classic um, and really the, the, the best of that by some distance. Well, and can I, I, was, can I, I, was can gonna... I just jump in there? Because I, I, I actually kind of disagree. Not that, that you know. I was. I know you were pretty much saying it, it's it's really good, and I'm I'm certainly not debating that point. But for for me, it's not a genre piece at all. And I understand that it can be if you want to look at it that way, because it's it's dealing with mobsters and and it's a, a crime thriller, I guess, or a, a gangster film, if you if you want. But I, I I'm sorry. For me, The Godfather, both one and two, are films about life. Uh, indeed, are films about family and. The Godfather taught me about life. The the Don, in, in, in his way, taught me about life, gave me lessons that I took forward into my own life, you know, to 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 be honest and, and be strong and sort of, even if they weren't your blood relations, to pick your family and to, to live and die for your family. And that, that's rightly or wrongly something that has, has been a massive pillar of, of my own uh, personal beliefs I, I i picked the people that i was close to and that is something obviously that you'll know a, a fair amount about and if, if that person has you know shown me love and and i you know i, I hold people to, to certain sort of levels and standards uh it's only the standards that i set for myself but if you have always been able to to keep to those standards then you you will always have my my trust and my love and that's almost something that i took from the godfather you know i think i sort of i i, I as strange as this might sound i agree with your respectful disagreement there i think like mm. i guess what i was saying was that like yeah yes it transcends the the, the genre 
but I think it's, yeah. it, it's just it I guess I'm just saying it is categorized as a mob film if you like because I yeah, think, yeah yeah I think we could go through any of these I mean uh the Lion King that didn't even make my top 10 and you could argue with that you know it, it transcends just like animation that teaches you about life it teaches you about what's important mm. and loyalty and, and love and, and family you know that, that's a family film in that yeah uh, or uh, like a film about family although I suppose it is also a family film this isn't so much a family film, but it is very much a film about family. And yeah. so, yeah, I probably didn't convey my point well enough there because you you rightly made that point in turn, which absolutely this is about so much more. And I, I guess I'd go back to the point I think I made when you were talking about Goodfellas, you know, that if you're not into what you would uh, what you would see in the mob section or whatever. Yeah. Forget that. It's it's there's a reason that this film has legendary status and it's commonly seen as one of the sequels that's better than the original yes we talked about terminator and stuff like that this famously is the one that often gets cited as a classic example of when a sequel is actually better than the original um i think i would agree with you Lars. i think i would uh just about shade the original both films are what i would describe as is almost like a complete universe I remember there's a, a bit in Family Guy where, uh, you know, they're, they're all sort of going to, to drown in a panic room, if I believe. And Peter sort of turns to, look to the rest of the family and sort of goes, now we're about to die. I, I'm going to leave you with this one secret. And he says, I, I didn't care for the Godfather. And they all lose their mind and they're just like, what, what do you mean? You, you know, explain yourself. And Peter says, it insists on itself, Lois. It insists on itself. And Actually, I kind of, uh, you know, as someone who was a massive, massive fan, I kind of got what he meant in terms of both the first and the second. They are so sort of steeped in their own reality that, I, I mean, that's that's really what is the art of it for me. That it, it draws me in that it's not just really crucial moments, but there's, there's moments where somebody's getting a call from their girlfriend and somebody's making a stew. Yeah, and you see people just doing real people things, which seldom happens in film, but, but like it does mm. add add weight to a character because it makes you relate to them. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I've made a stew before. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah you, I mean, I, you know, it sounds like I'm joking there, but I'm not. The, the Office did this very, very well. The British Office, you know, it just shows yes. shows these situations that happen in the world. Uh, the Godfather, yeah, like you say, very, very good at doing that. Just it just it's just so real. It is so real. Mm. Um, right, uh, we've got to wrap it up. We, I've got to almost put my yes. foot down here. Yeah. Uh, a, a final sentence, Lars. I, I don't want to press you there. Uh, you may have felt felt that you've said enough there, but if there is there, is there anything you feel that you could you could summarise this with, close this out with? Because um, we both I, know the Godfather Two must be watched by everyone. But um, oh, sure, sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, go on. The the only thing I would say is something I've not touched on uh, already is. Uh, in parts one and two, just how beautiful the music is. And I think it's uh, Enzo Morricone, I think so. And uh, yeah, the, the, the music of, of The Godfather, in fact, the Godfather theme is just a beautiful piece of music. Yeah, I, 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 I remember the music standing out, but I can't remember it off the top of my head exactly how it goes either. So that's all the more reason to watch it again, isn't it? <laughs> I've just seen it's Nino Rota, apparently. I'd uh, I'd heard otherwise, but obviously okay. not. All right.
We're into my number two now. Nice. Now, this is going to be a fun one, Lars. I should probably start by saying that my number two and number one are actually very interchangeable. It was almost the hardest choice, actually, of the lot um, to to pick which was going to be number one or number two. So they are interchangeable, but I did give it the thought it sort of required and and needed, deserved, whatever. And this is what ended up being number two. And I mean, I I thought, what could possibly be Ex Machina for a sci-fi? Yeah. And like, I mean, this is a film that many might not think of as a sci-fi, actually, because, you know, I guess films that come to mind, Blade Runner. Yeah. In fact, I haven't mentioned Blade Runner at all. Brilliant. Mm. Back to the Future. Um, that commonly gets called the greatest sci-fi of all time. It's fun, but it's it's not this level. No. Um, but you'd, you'd think of this film maybe more as like a family action or adventure film, really. But it is most definitely a sci-fi. And it's most definitely a film that everyone listening will have seen. And, Loz, it's the first time we've had some crossover in our top tens. Because, because this was your number six, and it's my number two. <laughs> it's Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I had to really sort of try and keep shum a bit when you mentioned it at number six. And, um, <laughs> and also now, I suppose I've, I need to find different things to say that we didn't last time. So... <laughs> I do remember you saying something like you thought the first hour or so was like perfection. Yes. I mean, the fact that this isn't number two is a, is a hint, I guess. For me, like the whole of this film is pretty much perfection to me. Mm. Like the, the casting, the acting, obviously the writing originally by Michael Crichton and then obviously adapted for the screenplay, the soundtrack, like yeah. the, the cinematography, like we talked about the CGI, you know, that stands up today even better than recent Jurassic World films, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm just, it's just got, uh, it's, it's got so many incredible scenes in it. I mean, we we talked about a couple before, like when they see the Brachiosaurus for the first time. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, you've got like the power outage, the, the first sort of T-Rex sighting at night, you know, mm. the, and then you've got like the car in the tree. The, yeah. And then later on, it's like the brachiosaur and the sneeze, and like the the, the oh, a, yeah. sta- a stampede, like in a field with the tree branch, mm. and then like an electric. Um, and my voice is going to continually <laughs> yeah. rise here. There's an electric fence scene, which is incredible. And no, Tim, no. And then there's a scene where they're eating ice cream and jelly, and like, yeah. When, when does eating jelly and ice cream ever go wrong? But it does here. And like, and then of course it leads into like that scene in the kitchen with there's, the there's there's raptors in the kitchen. What's am I gonna do? <laughs> yeah, and then and then there's there's one of the most tense moments in the whole film. And Dad, if you're listening, you'll agree with me here because we have both commented on this before. It's where <laughs> they're, they're up the stepladder into the vents. Oh yeah. Oh, like that. And 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 then of course the escape from the the welcome center. And one scene I forgot actually from that, that we're out of order now is that um, uh, a scene that I know you and me have discussed, Lars, and love, and it's it's hmm. um, it's the chap who's like, right, we're being hunted. And yeah, yeah. I've got her, and then of course the realization that he hasn't got her, and that she's got him, and of course, clever girl. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got all these scenes. I mean, which are about as good as it gets in terms of action and suspense, and just. And the pacing of the film, but obviously, uh, and you can see how excited I get talking about these exciting things. But like, 
during all of this, you've also got this incredible sort of pathos, you know, like we talked about Dr. Malcolm, Jack Goldblum's character, and he's like the voice of reason and ethics, isn't he? Mm. I mean, imagine being told as an actor, you've got that part. Yeah. And then a few years later, Independence Day, it was a good decade, wasn't it, for Jeff Goldblum? I, I think any year is a good year for Jeff Goldblum. I, I, perhaps this is what he's most known and loved for, this film. But Quite possibly. He, that and The Fly, got, maybe. Oh, The Fly, yeah. Oh, that's like another great film. Very Harry. Just because that's like more his film, you know what I mean? But yes, of course, he's, he's very much known for uh, Jurassic Park. But yeah, The Fly, that's a weird love story, isn't it? Mm. Um, but I mean, talking of like love stories in this, right? Uh, Jurassic Park, I mean, now bringing it back on point. There obviously is a bit of a love element to this, but like one of the big, deep underlying themes of this film, which I really, really like, is parenthood. Um, yeah. Dr. Grant, like Sam Neill's character, was always resistant to the idea of kids. I mean, do you remember at the start with the fossil site with that kid, like in the raptor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, fat kid. Yeah, he like revels in shutting this kid down and in his fear, you know, and you can tell he just doesn't like children. But by the end of this journey, John Hammond's grandchildren have gone on, you know, it, mm. he, he sort of grows to love them. And obviously that culminates in that lovely scene in the helicopter at the end. And talking to John Hammond, it's the, the, the motives are interesting with, with him. He's almost, I talked about Back to the Future, you know, like Dr. Emmett Brown, there's almost like this excitement for the, for the possibilities of this creation and it almost lands him in trouble. Mm. That's, that's kind of where I see John Hammond in a way. Yeah, there's a nice link there. Yeah, like rather than being any kind of capitalist sort of entrepreneurialism, um, that comes from his lawyer, which I'm, I'll sort of come back to in a minute. But, you know, like the scene at the end where he pauses just for a moment before being ushered into the helicopter. Yeah. You know, he just takes that final look around. You really feel that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's thinking, oh, that's my, my new super yacht down the pan this year. You know, he's thinking like the dream is over. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's what really- could have been. Yeah, and it's really quite sad. And so, yeah, going back to that, that sort of lawyer, you know, that, that chat around the table at the start. Uh, well, I say at the start, it's probably about 20 minutes into the film, but it's when they've just arrived at Jurassic Park and, and they're sat discussing all this stuff. For the time. And the dynamic is fascinating because John Hammond is literally caught between uh, what Dr. Malcolm is saying to his right and then what his lawyer is saying to his left. And, and you feel from there, or at least I did, I, I think he's kind of meant to be somewhat of an ambiguous character in that respect. And yeah, we, we well, I, I, did we mention Dennis Nedry last time? We sort of did, didn't we? He's one of the ultimate villains in a way in cinema for me. He mm. does, a, does an incredible job of just making himself thoroughly unlikable, which oh, uh, yeah. that, that is, uh, we, again, we talked about the hallmark of a good actor. That surely is one for me. And, uh, and obviously another scene later, which was another scene I, did, I didn't mention, actually, but where he's stuck in the mud. In yeah, more, yeah, I was, in more that, ways than one. That was one for, one that I nearly jumped in with. And, and also, in fairness, it's, it's around the same time, but the virus that he sets up on the computer systems, which is like, ah, 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 you didn't see the magic word. Oh, yeah, everyone remembers that. Like, I mean, and, and again, I, I suppose while we're talking of quotes, hold on to your butts. I mean, that, yeah. that's that's one that everyone knows, and that might be my favourite of all of them. And that brings me to the fact, people forget that Samuel L. Jackson's in this movie sometimes. Mm. I mean, again, it's another quite all-star cast, isn't it? Um, here's something you might not know, Loz, that there was a deleted scene which involved like a trip up the river in some kind of boat attraction or something. But right. thankfully, this actually made the light of day 
at Universal Studios. If anyone's been, they'll know what I mean. Um, we're called Jurassic Park River Adventure. Um, I've done some vlogs online of my trips to Florida and I I tried to film some of that ride and I got spat inside my ear by whatever those spitting dinosaurs are called. You know, the one that got <laughs> Nedry. Oh, yes. I got spat right in the ear by one of those. And then, and then <laughs> I got bollocked for filming. Like literally this, the, the, all the, the, the music cut out and, and this, I just said, please no recording at this time. Please no recording at this time. Like, mm, naughty, it, naughty. Yeah, it is. It, um, I still put it in the blog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nat- naturally. And so, anyway, <laughs> um, Jurassic Park River Adventure is superb. It's really cool. And they're currently building a Velocicoaster next to it, which which looks really. Cool. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, what else can I say that we didn't say before? I, I think a lot of people prefer, say, Jaws or like Raiders of the Lost Ark or mm-hmm. even Schindler's List. Oh, which by the way. Schindler's List was being worked on at the same time. Like, <clears throat> it wasn't just that they came out in the same year, 1993. Spiel- Spielberg? Spielberg? I don't know. It. Was actually working on both simultaneously. Like, uh, often on the same day. Like, mm. he'd, he'd do a day's shoot with Jurassic Park and then he'd go off and do Schindler's List at night. I mean, that that blows my mind. So, well, especially when, on, you, when, when you consider that both pieces are are you know very much respected pieces of cinema in their own right um you know you, you might expect if you were devoting so much of your time and effort into one thing that you might only have a smidgen of the effort and the creativity for another project but um i think both both uh, both of them are fully formed but just before i forget i just wanted to to bring up i'd heard that before jurassic world came out i'd heard a rumor that what they were going to do, and this is leading on from Dennis Nedry, mm-hmm. what they were going to do was, you know, where he's been tasked to get the embryos of the various dinosaurs that he hides in the shaving can, the little canister thing. Yes. And when he gets attacked by the, um, I know it's got a proper name, the D- Dilophosaurus or something, but yeah, the, the, not... the frilly-necked spitty bastard, yeah. right? Which is its technical name, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Looks almost like one of the films from Blackadder 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it's got, it's got it's got a rough. Yeah, yeah, it's a rough. Um, thank you. Yeah, I could have just said in Elizabethan times. To be honest, it it didn't just happen within Blackadder the Third. <laughs> Actually, it was Blackadder Two, wasn't it? So go on. He he drops the can. It sort of rolls down the river and then gets gets covered over in mud. And I'd heard that the way that they were almost going to bring back the park system is that someone was going to have found the can after all this time right. and had access to all these embryos sort of you know right off the bat well yeah and of course that, yeah that then they'd made even more of a mistake than uh, hammond had done and just sort of rushed forward with right we've got these embryos you know dinosaurs now 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 like go and put even almost like almost even less security in place and thought about it even less and i can see how they could have worked that into jurassic world actually well the thing but, is that um, in, a, in a way they sort of do work it into jurassic world and um jurassic world fallen kingdom that, that it's um t- humanity's moved forward a bit society's changed and people are far hastier now not just hastier but also far less of a moral compass that john hammond had and so mm-hmm. yeah you see it with fallen kingdom and like i said before that that's my favorite since the original because it does feel quite real the way that they actually run with it and i mean run with it um mm. before they can walk with it and so yeah I, it, it's... i'm slightly concerned though i have to say as much as i enjoyed the film 
I'm just concerned that it doesn't turn into sort of half Jurassic Park, half Transformers, where you've got almost like robotic enhanced dinosaurs that are going into a situation and like mowing down waves of troops and stuff like that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested... Do you know how... I mean, do you remember how Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was left? Uh, I think so. Because, boy, does that set up the next, and I believe, and I hope, final one in the in the series. Yes. Um, I, uh, I, I assume most people have either seen it or are not interested in seeing it by this point. Basically, a bunch <laughs> yeah. of them escape into the yeah. world. So mm. you've, got, you've got a T-Rex just roaming free. Um, and likewise with uh, a bunch of others, you know, I guess notably the T-Rex. I think one of the raptors, I think Blue, you know, was the, was the one. That yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know what they're going to do with this final one. But well, boy, is isn't it there also up... a, a Mosasaurus out there swimming about now? Yes. Yeah, you, you see a scene with the, with the, uh, right there with the guy surfing a wave and you can see mm. it. So I, I hope they don't fuck it up. Yeah. I, I really do because it, it's set up. Uh, and that, that's the first time the F-word's been used, ladies and gentlemen. But, and, and I said it would get used when it needed to be. Mm. Um, because uh, if they do, I'll be okay with it. Because, of course, we'll always have the original Jurassic Park. And, and, but I, think, I don't think they will massively mess it up somehow. I think all of them have been pretty good. But, yeah, the, the, the way it was set up for, for this next one, which I believe is, is coming out next year, mm. I'm, I'm so intrigued, I can't tell you. But... Uh, forget that we're talking about 1993's original Jurassic Park, uh, a film that clearly Lars and I both adore. It was your number six. Oh yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of my life thinking it's possibly even my number one, but there's another one which has always, again, had the same question asked of it: Is this my number one? And so there is a definitive one and two now. And Jurassic Park just missed out and made number two. But I think it's like I said, it's perfection. It's probably the film I'm the most enamoured with of all time. Mm. And probably the film I could watch more than any other film, or rewatch more than any other film. And it's it's probably the film I love the most. I know that might sound contrary to being a number two, but I think you'll see what I mean when I talk about number one. I think Jurassic Park is just the for me. It is almost the perfect film. And yes, like I said before, it's the perfect film if you watch it all the way through. Don't watch it on ITV at Christmas for God's sake, because <laughs> you, you'll get. You, you won't even necessarily realise that you're getting a very disrespectfully watered-down experience. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I can really say any more. I don't think I can even do any more to convey how much I love <laughs> Jurassic Park. It's, I think it's it's many people's favourite film ever, or it would at least perhaps be in their top three. And, and so I believe between you and I, Lars, we've probably done it justice over the course of maybe, I don't know, 40 minutes between us. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I, I think it's more than just sort of childhood nostalgia. There really is a, a lovely sort of structure to the film. It's so lovingly paced. I think the the, the casting once again is inspired, really. And, and you know, it's um, again, here's, here's one for, for my bingo card. It's, it's such a satisfying ending. Oh, yeah. So... Um, well, here we are, Lars. We're at our number ones. Now, you've already given yours away. I but, have. Uh, but before you talk about that, uh, maybe we should just do a quick countdown of what your 10 to, to 2 were. Do you, I mean, do you want me to run through them or do, or do you want to do the honours? Because they are your, your favourites. 
Okay, I will. Uh, I will just get them in front of me so I don't embarrass myself. You can't remember them off the top of your head, Wells. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I believe number ten was Silence of the Lambs. Then I had The Dark Knight, Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards, Jurassic Park, Hot Fuzz, Interstellar, Avengers Endgame, and Godfather Two. And now, uh, do tell us about your number one. Well, as, as you all already know, number, my number one choice, and I highly suspect forever will be my number one choice, is The Godfather. It, it's a film that I, I remember my dad sort of saying to me, oh, yeah, what, what's The Godfather? I think you'll like it. And I, I knew nothing about it. I, I don't think it even at that age i don't think i'd even seen another mobster film to compare it to and there are there are points in it where i i think as a as a younger man it might have almost been a risk because this is you know the with especially the start of the film is so immersive and it's certainly not you know to, to grip a younger audience you're always told that you need sort of you know fast-paced action and bright colors and all the rest of it i know the godfather was criticized by the producers paramount and nearly not released because they felt they felt at the time that the the way it was being shot, which um, essentially revolutionised cinema, was too dark, and that people in the cinemas wouldn't be able to properly see what was going on. And and uh, I essentially it said to Coppola, you know, either either we're going to brighten this up or it's it's not going to come out. And he had uh, stated who, all the who way along to to commission Coppola to to yeah. to make the film and then tell him how to make the film hmm, it's just quite. anyway yeah he, he he stuck to his guns and said you know I'm, I'm interested in making this film which is my view and you know if you're not interested then you know it doesn't have to come out and i think they realized that you know some money was better than no money uh, i just can't understand how you couldn't watch even even the bare bones of this film and not realize you've got something special i mean it, it i've always loved that again probably I mean, uh, I think it's as, as close to, to perfection as, as you're ever going to get film-wise. But that again, easily, easily, the first hour um, just flies by. It's an absolute joy. I mean, you know, uh, really lovely little touches. You know, we're, we're pretty much start, starting at the, the Don's daughter's wedding. And, you know, lots of really funny little touches. Uh, you know, it's the a jovial family introduction getting up- to Don Vito, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. You know, the, 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 I think he's got the cat on his lap, and of course he's in high spirits, and he's well, he, get, he's, giving he's, out favours and things, isn't he? And he's, he can't refuse a, a request on the day of his daughter's wedding. But oh, that's I mean, right. It, yeah, it, of course he can't refuse it, a request. It, if anything, he wants to get mm. off and, and to the wedding because he's got this queue of people that all want to see him and ask favours. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose actually, in fairness, that the, the start to the film uh, where the Undertaker comes and requests that uh, revenge essentially for his daughter who'd, who'd been beaten and, and raped by these two lads who'd, um, who he'd taken to court and um, they got suspended sentences and, and walked away and I, I he then sort of comes to Don Vito and asks for justice and and Don Vito sort of almost like chastises him and, and says you know uh, why did you go to the police I, I, I'm your godfather I'm your protector you know the, the why, why did you not come to me? 
Mm. Oh, you know, please just help me out and do do as I say. And of course, he's a, he's a traumatized father, um, and he's he's just tried to do what he felt was right for his children. And Don Vito sort of wisely says, you know, uh, when you came to America, you you had your business and you did well for yourself, and you didn't need a friend like me. But you know, if you'd come to my house with a spirit of friendship then the the people that hurt your daughter would suffer this very day but you you don't come offering friendship you don't come you, you know you don't even think to call me godfather and it's almost from the outside looking in seems like quite a, an arrogant thing to be like no you must show your submission and you must bow to me but actually i think don vito feels like he's a a fair and just don and the you know the 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 people that uh, almost sort of under his protection should always see him as as the the person to, f- f- that they need to come in and ask for help above anyone else because he he knows the the true value of justice because he can do and 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 sort of authorize things that obviously the police just can't and then that you know it juxtaposed uh, you know a very serious scene where he's essentially being begged to, to do murder with yeah. with uh, as you say the 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 big band that's on stage and a lovely sunny day and everyone's sort of enjoying the wedding and there's people up singing and they get one of the elderly relatives i think it's probably had a bit too much wine and 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 he's sort of uh, i obviously not speak in italian I don't know whether he's uh, inventing his own lyrics, but certainly by the posturing that he's doing, it, it comes, comes across quite rude. And, and the, the sort of gasps of uh, in the in well, the the the, uh, the crowd that are gathered. And uh, I don't know enough Italian yet to know all the rude words. I've not I've not focused in on that as part of my uh, journey yet with learning the language. I'm glad to hear that that wasn't your first concern when starting a new language. No, I learned <laughs> one one word, which I think is very common in the Italian vocabulary, and so probably would would help me if I was ever out there. But um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so um, as, I, as I said before, you know, the, the Godfather really is a, a, a film about family as much as it is about crime, and I think you've you've got a father who's wanting to sort of idiot-proof the future when he almost has to hand things over when when he's no longer there preparing for because the likelihood is when you're a mobster you're either going to go to prison or you're going to be murdered you know there's there's such a high likelihood of one or the other Mm. um that to sort of lay the way for your successor is is just prudent planning frankly and really indoctrinating him into uh this is michael indoctrinating him into the backstabbing world and the the sort of the politics and, and who will do what and and you know watch for so and so because they'll that you're you're you know and things like you'll be asked to go somewhere by a good friend of yours uh they'll let you choose the place because that will make you feel safe and when you turn up there you'll be assassinated you know things like that where he's just trying to pro- provide a, a, a background knowledge because michael's the the one almost outside of the family he doesn't want to be a mobster particularly he went and fought in the war and, and, and it came back with, with medals and mm. served with distinction. And now he's, he's faced with, you know, his ailing father and, you know, <clears throat> uh, ends, up, ends up essentially as the main heir. And it's a situation he never particularly wanted, but it would be the ruination of his family to, to not sort of step into the breach and, and, and sort of take action. And always trying to do 
the right thing, even against a backdrop of, you know, drugs and murder and, and gambling and, and, and all the rest of it. I, I really thought that Michael's story is, is so amazing because I think, you know, again, it's, it's so relatable. It's so understandable. I mean, obviously, I've, I've never been to war, but I, I understood Michael's journey uh, from practically the first minute. He was in a situation where he was almost embarrassed by his family. And, uh, you know, he just wanted to be a, a normal guy. And he, he could really never be a normal guy. Mm. And uh, he made errors just like everybody else. But he always tried to do the right thing, always tried to protect his family. Yeah, you, you wouldn't it, think a film that involves crime so heavily would also deal so heavily in morality. But it really does, doesn't yes. it, the piece? Mm. And uh, even by Godfather 3, you, you, you can see that he is really trying to smooth over the last of the rough edges in the family. And, you know, again, you, you see how conflicted he is. And it all starts in, in this place where he's already compromised himself by the end of the film. He's already made decisions that you can't necessarily just take back. And I think that's, that's really compelling stuff. And, and again, I mean, my God, what, what a cast. Uh, without necessarily having to, to, to pull names out, because uh, yeah, once again, I, I just think it's a film to be experienced. It's one of those films where I wasn't ever at any point thinking about characters in terms of characters. It, it's almost a, it's so it's such a complete sort of snapshot of life. Like I said, with two, it's it's you know almost it's such a a completeness. You know, even the the mundane to the extraordinary. It, it, it's just, wow, it's just amazing. It deserves to be called the greatest film of all time, and it often does. And um, I, the reason I didn't name it as a mention or honourable mention is because I knew this was coming for you. Yes. And I suppose I probably should have still named it because, I, I mean, I named the likes of Inglorious Bastards and I knew that was going to come up somewhere. Mm. So I should have probably at least thrown the names out there because, for the record, I do think these are groundbreaking and, and incredible pieces of cinema. It's important to say, I guess, that I've only seen the part one you know the first one the original twice and i've only seen part two once so mm. and there's a lot going on they're, they're both lengthy films i'm glad they're the length that they are because it's all killer no filler and um, yeah that, that's wow yeah uh, you're number one I'd, i thought it would either be this or the godfather part two <laughs> yeah and um I understand. I understand. And um, these will go on the list. We have to watch them again. I, I know there are many that I haven't seen that have made this top 10, which we'll watch, of course. But but yeah, I know we've watched The Godfather Part 1 together. I remember that. Mm. But you'll have to come around and watch it again now because I've got two ridiculously comfy chairs, a really good big TV. It's a good cinematic experience for watching films. And, too right. Um, uh, uh, I, I assume you own the Godfather trilogy on on some format. I've got a 4K DVD player or UHD or whatever it's called, so I can I can play it to any level you want, baby. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I suppose I've these, these are films. But... These are films from about I don't know the seventies, really, aren't they? Uh, Godfather one's nineteen seventy two, I believe. Godfather two's nineteen seventy four. Okay. Oh wow, they're only two years apart. Yeah. Wow, and Cop Coppola directed both. Oh man, yeah. Well, oh, please do bring them over. You know, we'll just yeah, with, yeah. We'll start with what I think is Eternal Sunshine. You know, that's the that's the first yeah. one, I've, and then we'll just work our way through. Let's just let's have a quick run through this watch list just once more, shall we? Eternal Sunshine of the God, um, Spotless Mind, <laughs> Goodfellas, Contact, Train to Busan, Dig, Thor Ragnarok, The Elephant Man, Eight Mile, Silver Linings Playbook, Creed, 
with Nail and I, Doctor Strangelove, Terminator 2. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, Love Actually, The Dark Knight, Pink Floyd the Wall, Inglorious Bastards, Interstellar, Mrs. Doubtfire. And then I suppose <laughs> you've got, uh, I think The Exorcist we should watch again, to be honest. I think Ex yep. Machina we should watch together, Avengers yep. Endgame, but, but then mm-hmm. we're, we're talking, you know, much more than Endgame, but virtually the whole of the Avengers series, I guess, all the ones <laughs> that you recommend. And I, we probably don't need to watch Jurassic Park together, let's face it. But, no. But, uh, well, uh, Lars, is there anything else you want to say about The Godfather? It's be, it's beyond genre. It's not action, but it has action. It's not romance, but it has romance. It obviously features, you know, crime and, and mafia stuff. But to to say that it's just a, a mob film, I think it really does it such a disservice. I, I've already, it, it it's one of those films where I, I I've said this a number of times now. It's one of those films. It is the film as far as I'm mm. concerned. That's why it's number one. In many ways, it's the film that sparked my love of cinema. (laughs) I apologise if I jumped in with your last sentence, but it just felt like a good segue because you said it was the the film that really made you appreciate cinema Mm. and and just the, the craft of, of filmmaking yes and that could not be um a more perfect fitting description for what is my number one film of all time and i mean when i talked about ex machina at number three i thought what on earth could beat this for a sci-fi you know mm-hmm. and then we talked about jurassic park which was my number two could yep. anything beat jurassic park for a sci-fi Lars? <laughs> now I mean, before I reveal the film, and those that know me know this film, let's face it. But I mean, let, let's let's look back at some of the central themes I've waxed lyrical about during this whole series so far. The, the likes of existentialism, purpose, um, theology and God, you know, science, humanity, love, uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even that one kind of applies here, actually. And I've talked about <clears throat> some Kubrick movies, you know, The Shining, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Dr. Strangelove in particular was just outside the top 10. Well, this was his zenith, and this was one of his first movies that came out in 1968. And it is, for me, still quite possibly the most groundbreaking and important piece of art ever created. And yes, I'm happy to throw down a bold comment like that. And it's frequently seen in the top sort of five films of all time, certainly often cited as the best sci-fi of all time. And if you haven't already guessed, it's 2001, A Space Odyssey. My number one film ever. Right, now, one of the beauties of this is I I can't really do what I've previously done in trying to lay down a, a, a synopsis for this or even really describe what this is about, because... It's so wonderfully grandiose and, and ambiguous. Um, some might say pretentious, but I wouldn't. Uh, there's just no way I can properly do it. I, I mean, I'll give it my best. <laughs> In short, it kind of follow, it, it follows the evolution of mankind, really, through sort of three or four distinct stages, each of which are kind of transitioned or heralded with a, a, an important discovery, some, some form of kind of um, evolution as a species. And then the appearance of this like towering black monolith, which is quite a, mm. a well-known image, you know, associated with the film. And I suppose I don't want to go into too much detail in any of the stages, but, but I mean, the first into the second, 
is cut with arguably the most famous transition edit in film history. Like we've all mm. seen it with the bone that's tossed up in the air and it becomes a satellite in space. I mean, yeah. I'd love I'd love to elaborate, but this is a long film we're talking about and it's open to a number of different interpretations. It's an incredibly divisive film. And um, mm. for, for every man like me that will extol the virtues to the Hilton back, uh, there's at least another who will declare it like the, the biggest piece of pretentious drivel ever put to celluloid, you know? <laughs> I mean, th- there's there's 40-something minutes before even a single word of dialogue. Uh, you, you have to prepare yourself for something extraordinary before you start watching this. That's what I'd say. It, it's not light viewing. But if you do so properly, then, then you might just be in for the most profound viewing experience of your life and, and one that will stay with you for goodness knows how long afterwards. And so, yeah, like I say, you know, most people probably know it starts with kind of us as uh, simians and then kind of develops into humanity as we know today. Then there's the discovery of another monolith in space. And this kind of pushes us further into the realms of further evolution. And this is largely where the film is set in in this particular phase. Whether you realise it or not, you've seen this, you know, influenced other things or parodied time and time again down the years. I mean, oh, Sim- yeah. once again, the Simpsons did it. There was a Treehouse of Horror with Pierce Brosnan, if you remember. And he, he, sort mm. of, he plays a version of the HAL 9000 in this one, uh, which we're, we're all aware of the image of HAL with its pulsating red light and its monotone red voice, which utters arguably the most famous words in the film of, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. So again, if you didn't already know that, um, that's another piece of pub trivia for you. You now know what that quote is associated with. And I've given you some good <laughs> pub trivia. I mean, the, p- please do feel free to leave a hearty donation at the end of this podcast for some of these. <laughs> but um, so I guess in the main section of this, it touches on a lot of themes I mentioned with Ex Machina, which is that mm. if we're evolving technology-wise into a place where we can actually create true artificial intelligence, where does that leave us as a species? And what does it mean for the future of Earth and indeed the universe? And the, the, the final act, if you will, is probably the one that's most open to interpretation and certainly the most discussed, I would say. And the transition into this, again, features one of the most famous passages in a film ever, which is that the, the Stargate, the colour sequence. And I still don't quite know how they did that. Um, mm. And again, we talked about Kubrick with Doctor Strangelove, which was the film that preceded this, I believe. Uh, this came out in 1968. Mm. So, I mean, it is as of this moment, I think it's 53 years old, is it? So, or it's 50 plus years old. And again, it's visual stand-up today. We talked about Jurassic Park in 1993. Well, how about this? You know, 1968. Yeah. And like I said, I think Jurassic Park will forever remain my most rewatchable of all time. And I think Ex Machina more so probably too. But this is a different experience. This is a spiritual experience. And it's one that many others will have at the top of their list. It's frequently up there with the likes of Star Wars and The Godfather and Citizen Kane and Vertigo as the greatest film of any kind of all time, and deservedly so. It gripped me. It gripped me when I first watched it at a fairly young age because of everything I've mentioned up until now, I suppose, and just it really got me engrossed in what cinema is capable of and just transcending, you know, the... The idea of just sitting and it, it just it wasn't just sitting and watching something you know what I mean it was so mm. much more than that I mean and the thing is right uh Roger Ebert you know him the, the critic oh yeah and, the film, film critic yeah yeah I mean he said that the genius is not in how much Stanley Kubrick does in this film but how little and there are all sorts of theories about what the ending means and I don't want to go into that really and I think now in later years, uh, if I rewatch it, and it's not a film I need to rewatch much. It's like it, I could be satisfied with this film for about five years, I think. 
I'm, I, we've established I'm kind of fascinated by fascinated rather by theology and the idea that there's so much more in the universe than we know and indeed a higher power of some kind the, the idea of what God really is I do mm. believe in God in that respect I believe in a higher plane of intelligence you know like force of love and light and so this idea of not just evolution but spiritual ascension in this film and if you're in any way interested in philosophy and the universe and just life in general, and you haven't seen this, then hopefully you know what to do, because I, I don't know what more I could say about it, really. I feel like it's probably one of the ones I've talked the least about, but it's because I, I almost don't know what to say about this film. It's such an experience. And um, like I say, with that, it's a, it's a divisive one for, for every one of me that, that says you've got to watch this. It's the greatest piece of cinema in history. There will be, you know, at least one other person who will say, Oh, don't bother with that. Like, what a waste of three hours. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's one of the things that makes art true art. Sure, sure. Well, I was going to say to you, actually, as I might well be in that category, I might give my reaction and then you can react to my reaction because I think that might help uh, A, speed this along, but B, that it might sort of help focus points where perhaps, because I'm really interested to watch this with you you know, I, I obviously very much respect your opinion, but there's there's a very strong reason for me that it's not in the top twenty. Now, I you know I is it the ending? I no, not particularly. <laughs> okay, no, sorry, go on. Uh, it's not a bad guess though. I, I I like your thinking. So yeah, basically, I do wonder whether having bought it on the back of you saying this is the best film of all time might have potentially set it up for a fall, mm-hmm. but. I sat down uh, wanting to enjoy it, you know, expecting a religious experience. As you say, uh, I'd, I'd seen all of these references and I have to be completely honest. I don't hate the film in, in any way, but on the back of, you know, all this praise and, and all the, um, the background that I'd got on it, I, I have to honestly say here and now, I made it to the point where... Just to give you an, an idea you of You didn't of where even it finish was. it. No. Um, I got to the point where they reached the second monolith that they'd found. And they're in my copy. That, that was and, as far as you got. Yeah. And I uh so yeah, so they 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 find the, the, the second monolith on Mars, I believe it is. They're, in my copy, there's an intermission break. So like, I wasn't I, I wasn't listening. So sorry, sorry, I didn't hear the last. I was just checking how many shotgun shells I've still got. Yeah, well, you know. Don't hunt what you can't kill. So, yeah, there's an intermission break. And um, I actually stopped and, and, and thought about it for a minute. And I genuinely felt I'll, I'll rewatch this another time. But, yeah, as I say, genuinely not trying to, to piss on your chips, lad. But um, I, 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 I can't I, say I, I'm surprised by your reaction. <laughs> um, and it's I, I did kind of expect. And I know you'll not think that this is any sort of prejudice maybe against your intelligence because you know that's not the case but I did I did think you'd fall into that camp that just didn't uh, weren't sufficiently absorbed to just sit through the length of it and uh, much like the godfather it's about the same length I believe three hours maybe and Mm. um, uh, with many quiet passages where not a great deal seemingly happens and so it's interesting that that's your number one and this is mine because this is a film where, well, like I said, 40 minutes before a single word is spoken. I mean, for me, I suppose, without wanting to go into what happens 
I think the end of the film is my favorite bit. You know, the 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 final, let's say maybe half an hour, or right. maybe even just the final hour. That's that's my my favorite bit, and it just goes to show that you and I are two different people, two beautiful, marvelous. Um, what was the first thing you said in this podcast? Um, dazzling diamonds amongst a sea of pebbles. Pebbles, that's it. Yeah. Now. Well, they, there you go. Um, <laughs> And we're just dazzling in slightly different directions here. Indeed. Uh, I mean, as I say, I, I know you've um, spoken about, you know, perhaps people might find it pretentious. And I, I don't know whether as much I found it pretentious as much as, you Boy. know, I went, I went into it, you know, feeling like this needs to be a deep dive. This needs to be, you know, look for the minutiae, look, look for the little details. And, and uh, you know, the, I, I wouldn't quite say the battle, but the, the situation with Hal and the astronauts and the, mm. you know, dealing with an AI that's, you know, potentially uh, not all it seems, shall we say. Um, I, w- I was really intrigued with that. And um, I think it doesn't come from like almost in the moment when you're viewing it in the present, when you're seeing it happen. It almost there's there's almost not much minutiae to, to, to extrapolate in those mm. moments in, in a way. It's I think it's more retrospectively when you walk away this is what I mean about being, being a film that stays with you. And this is what I mean about me being satisfied for five years off the back of a film like this, because I could, yeah. I could spend five years thinking about this, thinking about certain moments. And then, you know, in the con- grander context of the entire thing, piecing it together, making my own uh, assumptions. But I just guess uh, I, by all means, chip in with the word that I'm floundering for right now. But interpretations that's probably the word mm. you know about uh, what it means you know and, and so yeah this this for me is why it's it's what it is it, it's if if aliens came down Lars, and um well that would be the interesting thing actually do you remember you said you'd show them terminator 2 for like an action film yes yeah if they if if they if they arrived if they knocked at my door for whatever reason and said right We've come here uh, to request that you you show us a piece of cinema that exemplifies what your your species are capable of. <laughs> the funny thing is, the more I think about this, the more I don't know if I would actually put this on because, yeah. of course, they would. No, I suppose I would because I, I could say, right, well, this comes from someone who doesn't necessarily have that understanding of the universe. Um, this is an interpretation of it. What do you think? You've come from elsewhere in the universe. Sit down and watch this. How, how, Sit down. How do you like your coffee? <laughs> Can I get your gentleman a cigar? Yeah, macaroon. <laughs> All good films are accompanied with the macaroon, Lars. I hope you know that. It, it reminds me very slightly of this certain times in my life where, like, and uh, for example, you're a musician and I'm not. And I've noted with other people who are musicians that they've also enjoyed certain things where I've felt a bit like, oh. Okay, you know, cool enough. I'm certainly not saying this is a bad film, but in, in just uh, not be. to to be saying, you know, it, it wasn't transcendent for me. That's that's really all I'm saying is that that's not the experience I walked away with. No, well, that, but, then then that that makes perfect sense of the whole thing, doesn't it? Like if, yeah. because because this film has to be transcendent for it to have anything like this sort of impact. If it isn't, then it will not make your top twenty. Yeah, that that that's the best thing you could have said that just makes sense of why it's number one for me. Indeed, and uh, probably I, I well I don't know where it would rank for you. 
but I, I wondered whether they had something to do with it because like I, I remember once hearing you and others refer to a piece of music and say it's not about the notes he plays it's about the notes that he isn't playing and I know that in itself sounds a little bit sort of pretentious but at the same time I wondered at that time whether because I'm not uh, uh, you know, I don't. I, I've never learned an instrument. I don't. I've never learned how to read sheet music, and I didn't know whether that almost is a, is a part of the brain that is um, perhaps more developed in people that have. Now, do you know uh, what the interesting you know, thing is there? That to, to to have a degree of skill in being able to play guitar, I, I can't read sheet music for, to save my life, but just being able to mm. play an instrument. But the interesting thing is there. Um, what you talked about, I I don't know exactly what that is. It it could be Mark Hollis, who's one of my heroes, and he said, "Don't play two notes unless you've got a reason to play one." Uh, no, it was, it was "Don't play two notes unless you can play one properly, and don't play one unless you've got a reason to play it." And the space right. between them is, and so it's that it's the the restraint, I guess. But the interesting mm. thing is that that's that's got something to do with something that's nothing to do with um <laughs> being proficient on guitar you know oh i see that that's to, that's more to do with just interpreting uh, just hearing and receiving music i guess if that makes any sense mm. so it's an interesting point but i think I, I suppose there are some bands that or albums that would be like a musician's album you know like and you could argue that 2001 is like a filmmaker's film mm. but the, I don't know, the likes of Alex Garland, who we talked about with Ex Machina and stuff, you know, he might have looked to, to this, this, this might have been his inspiration, the thing that got him into film. I know that, uh, yeah, 2001 is frequently cited as that type of film, you know, that the aspiring filmmakers who have an interest in sci-fi and maybe want to delve into, into that area of, of, like, of genre and storytelling. Um, this is their messiah. But again, you, you, you've sort of talked about how you sort of ruminate on the film and that it stayed with you and you've uh, addressed to, you, to your own satisfaction some of the, the themes. And I mean, who, who the hell knows, uh, you know, for any certainty why we're here and the purpose of life and all these massive, massive questions. Well, exactly. No one does. I, I certainly don't. I'm not going to try it myself right now. But again, you know, for me, the art that uh, in, in any respect that I've appreciated the most has always been the sort of piece where you can walk up to it and get what you are supposed to get from it in its own sort of sense, you know, in, in its own right. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you understand where I'm coming from there? I do. I do. Um, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I think typically films, typically my favourite films are uh, not open and shut cases, if you like, but at least films where you can walk away and, and <clears throat> Um, it'll it'll stay with you for certain reasons, but you don't necessarily have to go off and like th thesize. Is that the word? Or hypothesize about yeah. the theorize? Theorize, yes, that's theorize or hypothesize. Let's go with theorize. Your version that's probably better. Um, whereas with this film, yeah, you, you really do have to kind of do that. So I'm happy that we've said enough on 2001. It's my favorite film ever. Mm. And, it, it, and if I do say so, it's been the most interesting. Uh, sort of cross-examination of the lot, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's cool. But, but I'm, I've got to mention, as I said before at the very start of this, covered my favourite film of all time there. And I now want to give a special special mention to my favourite scene <laughs> of all time in a film. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, so we know what yours was, because that came up at the time when the film came up. I've, I was going to say, I've already blown my load in that respect, haven't I? You have, yeah. 
Uh, whereas I'm I'm ready to blow. <laughs> so my favourite movie of all time, we just talked about, it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. And my favourite scene of all time in any film ever is also in a Stanley Kubrick film. And it's from a film that only made it to the list of, of mentions. Like it didn't even make the top 20, uh, which mm. is The Shining. Mm. A, uh, a seminal horror thriller which deserves to be right up there with the, with the Exorcist and the thing. Uh, well, to be fair, it is, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it is yeah. in, in that regard. Now, this scene, um, do you remember, as I said, it shared some similarities with yours, some Inglorious Bastards, about someone turning on a sixpence and the, the way mm. slowly the whole dynamic of a scene shifts the other way, like in, in an incredibly sinister way? Yes. Well, here it is. Um it's, do you know what? I can't actually remember exactly where it is in the film because it's quite a long film, but it's where Jack Torrance enters the ballroom, I think, for the second time. And, and this time it's like brimming with people, seemingly, you know, music, drinks. And um, Oh, and he goes to the bar. And he accidentally, well, no, it, that, that I think was his first visit. Um, this, okay. this is where he, I think he does go to the bar and he gets a drink, but it's not the conversation you're probably thinking of at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he gets a drink and then he accidentally collides with like a butler waiter who would be called Delbert Grady. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, this is, sorry, I'll shut up, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, so he's sort of frightfully, frightfully jovial and, and Jeeves-like, you know, and and he takes Jack Torrance to the bathroom to try and get, like, the stains out of his jacket, you know, because some, I don't know, Baileys or shot cocktails have gone up flying in this little collision. And so it's this, it's there where this scene plays out that I'm talking about. Um, mm. Visually, it's in a very striking-looking bathroom. It's like a piercing royal red sort of colour. Yes. Basically, Jack Torrance, which is played by Jack Nicholson, if you didn't know, and Delbert Grady have like a bit of a chat whilst he's trying to just sort his jacket out. And so, yeah, again, I'll say it again, much like your scene, Lars, it starts off very jovial between the two of them. And Jack Torrance is very much kind of leading the conversation and almost holds the power, if you like, between the two of them. Um, mm. When he recognises the name Grady, he proceeds to sort of gently inquire as to whether he's the man he thinks he is based on his name. And things start to get a little more sinister as Jack kind of presses a you know a bit further and says like, "You were the caretaker here. I saw your picture in the papers. You chopped your wife and kids into little pieces, and then then you blew your brains out. And then mm. uh, and then there's this wonderful pause. As that there are many wonderful pauses in this conversation. It's it's there's a lot of that. And Grady, I couldn't do it justice, but basically Grady just after this long pause, says, I'm sorry to differ with you, sir, but you are the caretaker. Mm. You've always been the caretaker. And it's it's at this point that things kind of start to turn a bit. Yes. And, and he slowly turns from, like, genial and the dynamic shifts, and for the first time, you get a close-up on Delbert Grady's face. And he, he sort of starts to talk about Jack Torrance's family, and he's no longer leaning back at this point and away from him. And so, yeah, it turns like that. And you just really wouldn't see it coming. And you get shivers at this point, or at least I do, as he says what he does next. 
and um, I probably haven't got time to go through that, and I, nor could I do it justice, <laughs> frankly. But the, the actor's name who plays Delbert Grady, he's, he's called Philip Stone. Mm. And he should have won a myriad of awards for this scene because he just steals the show. And everyone talks about Jack Nicholson's performance as Jack Torrance in the film. Yeah. And he is great elsewhere in the film, I would say. But if anything, in this scene, he's quite awkward and almost unnatural with his facial movements. Whereas... Philip Stone, he is mesmerizing. Like, and I mean mesmerizing. He barely moves throughout the whole scene. I don't think he even blinks, but, <laughs> but like, but his presence, his presence, Jack Nicholson must have been in total awe of just being face to face with it. And I genuinely think resorted to almost trying to act him, which he just wasn't going to be able to do, quite frankly. And um, so, yeah, Delbert Grady carries on with what he's saying. And then, of course, there's use of the word collected, which um, sends shivers up me again. Um, mm. you... I, I took it to be, it was almost like the the final breaking point of the actual Jack Torrance into becoming completely enthralled under the spell of the Overlook Hotel. Yes. The, do you know what I mean? That he'd, it, his last... His last little bit of resistance was, oh, but, and that's why he puts it in such a way, the sort of almost like throwing it in his face, the, oh, but, but you were the one that killed your children, weren't you? You know, and is no, awfully sorry. And I, that, that whole, you know, I think that's finally his, his last little bit of sort of sanity is, is erased and steamrolled. And then that, as I said, I thought he says, uh, teach them a lesson, but as soon as you said, they need to be corrected. I was like, oh, yes, that, that, that's that's the quote, all right. And, well, and the I thing think... is, yeah, he's talking about his own daughters when he talks about the corrective. But, yeah, he, he touches on Jack's son, Danny, and it's it's what Delbert says that inspires, really, the actions that follow that are yes. probably the most remembered from the film. And uh, Jack Thomas is like, well, he is a very willful boy. And, um, mm. and then, yeah, Delbert Grady is, indeed he is, Mr. Torrance. Perhaps a rather naughty boy if I may be so bold, sir. And then it's like, perhaps he needs a little bit talking to, perhaps mm. a bit more. You know, but, but it's, yeah. it's, it's done with this veil of like, well, you know, that Jeeves Butler. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, He's just helping him out. Stance, but it's, oh, it's so sinister. And like I say, you know, it, just, just watch it back. Go and watch this scene, guys. I know I've said before, don't go off and watch a scene off the back of this, but I would say with this, just Google or YouTube Delbert Grady and just, you'll see what I mean when I'm talking about Philip Stone and his presence. And he just, he doesn't move. But I, I think, I think to be fair, I, I have to feel like I, I, I feel like I need to jump in because I do think actually it's a bit of a crime to watch it because I remember listening to Mark Kermode who was talking about it. And in this scene in particular, and it was whilst I was in a period of my life where I was doing delivery driving and I stopped in a layby to watch this scene in particular, just to sort of refresh myself exactly what we were talking about and, and, and the, the actual, you know, to, to watch it, to have it fresh in my mind. And I immediately felt at the time that I'd shortchanged myself a little bit. And I think that it's also the actions that the, the, the leading up to and, and the actions thereafter, like you say, that really, really give the full gravitas to the scene. And therefore, I, I think it's you're most definitely better off watching the full thing because The Shining is, is, a, is a work of art in itself. It is. I think the only reason I suggested 
contrary to what I previously had, is that The Shining is unanimously a very confusing film. Mm. And so I think to take this out of context doesn't do any damage because it's an, it's an especially confusing film within a confusing scene within the context of the rest of the film. Anyway, I, I think that the Jack Torrance is a character. Of course, you get to know him in the build up to this scene, whereas th- this is the first time you really meet Delbert Grady. And yes. So, yeah, maybe it's easy for me to say I could just watch it out of context. But uh, no, you know, well, of course you, you, you know what happens around it, don't you? Well, I do, but yeah, but the thing is, things happen around it, and that's maybe the best way of putting it. They happen around it. Mm. This is like this little pocket of just something else almost. That I mean, it, it does make some sense in the context of the, the film. Oh, yeah. Sorry, based on maybe like one or two interpretations of what that film meant, because much like 2001, uh, The Shining is a film that could mean a few things, to be honest, and it was never clarified. Mm. And uh, so you can you can decide what your interpretation is, and I guess one of those interpretations would would make this scene work within the context of the film. But I um, no, yeah, I'm going to stand by what I said. Actually, the weird the weird thing is, of all the scenes I've mentioned in any film, um, I would actually say this is this is the one where you could just go off and YouTube it, provided there's one in good quality, and just watch it on its own and kind of get what I mean, and then you could go off and watch the film and not have it in any way ruined by the inclusion of this scene. Far from it, because you'd see the scene again. <laughs> you'd, see the, you'd, see, <laughs> you'd see the greatest scene ever for a second time. So my advice would be to go off and, and just and watch this scene if you haven't seen it. But, but I'm saying that, I don't know if there's a good scene on YouTube, like a good copy of, on YouTube of this scene, but just Delbert Grady bathroom, I guess. I, I don't know what you'd search really. Del, Delbert Grady. Well, perhaps uh, the shining. You're the caretaker. Yeah, caretaker. You just put double uh, Brady caretaker. I guess. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. And I suppose we've got to try and wrap this up, Lars, because I'm going to have my work cut out here to, <laughs> to trim this down to feature length. This has been a, a, a joyously epic podcast, and um, we finally got to the end of our our absolute top of the mountain favorite films. And and if you've got this far with us. Well done, and thank you. You know, mm, uh, we what, salute you. What? Yeah. What are your thoughts? I mean, is there actually a means of commenting at the moment? I, I suppose these are on YouTube, so I mean, you could reply there. I mean, if you're listening on Spotify, yeah. Google, etc., just I don't know, just search for the podcast name on YouTube, and you'll find it there. You'll recognise the logo. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, do feedback. You know, message one of us privately if you want. If you know us and you're listening, and uh, Luz and I know where we're going to go next with this. This now completes the series of film, doesn't it, Luz? Oh, yes. And um, we we are open to suggestions as to where we sort of go here on. But we, we have, I think, both decided that the next point we're going to go into the second series, if you like, is going to be on music. Mm, indeed. But also, I, I think the both of us feel like... Uh... A, a pair of idiots like us can waffle on about pretty much anything and uh, and and make it seem half entertaining. So we we'll give anything a go, really. Quite. So I mean, I I almost want to not apologise, but to to reassure folks because I think this has been quite a a serious uh, chunk of recording we've done right here. Not to worry, you know, we we're, we're not going to go light on the bands. In fact, if if anything, I think. Uh, but we we can go uh, a little bit more freeform than, than than what we have previously. But I, I think it just goes to show at this end of proceedings, uh, we've we've really 
been passionate about these films and, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed hearing you talk about your film Scott and I've really enjoyed talking about the the films that I've read you know the, the this end of things where it's you know the top three has really been passionate passionate films for me so uh, it's been great it has been great it's been a journey a voyage mm. uh, and yeah we're, here we are at the end so let's uh, let's end it there thank you very much for listening as always, we love you. And uh, I, th- I think it's time to, to bid us all adieu. Adieu. Chip, 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 chip. Chip.